This is something completely different for those of you that are, are guests with us. Hey, glad you're here. Welcome to the Civil War. Um, <laughs> and actually, we do have a Civil War in our home. Amber and I are the hardcore Patriots fans in our house. Luke is a hardcore Steelers fan. So Luke, Luke, <laughs> I cannot believe you guys. You can pray for Luke today. He's going to have quality time in his room. <laughs> Now, we're, we're looking forward to it. It's just something a little different, a little exciting, keep our eyes open. And, and um, as Jen told me before she sang the song, that song was directed at this jersey. <laughs> if God can redeem a Patriots jersey, man, then he can redeem anything. Uh, so today, we're going to be in Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be uh, uh, there today. We have a lot of work to do, and I have warned a few people. I'm not sure what the, um, the mixture of, of, of sugar and protein and caffeine that I got this morning, but it gave me like, like, like uh, the Avenger type uh, speed this morning. So I'm going to try to keep it slow. We'll see what happens. Galatians, cha- and you know how well I talk slow. I'm really good at that. Um, Galatians chapter three, we've been in Galatians the past few weeks. And just by, by means of recap, I just want to, and I think you're going to see it in particular here in chapter three, very clearly how angry the Apostle Paul is. There is no soft touch, you know, let me, let me massage you into belief, let me carry you slowly into uh, agreeing with me. Paul comes out of the gates swinging at the churches in Galatia, and he is angry because the churches in Galatia, he says, have added to the gospel. So in order to, to understand what Paul's so angry about as we walk through the rest of Galatians, we need to be able to understand what the gospel is. What the gospel isn't is it's not a resolution to do better because most certainly you will fail again. It's not uh, a teaching or an example to follow because you don't need education. Man, you, you need to get rescued out of this hot mess that is life. It's not a, a level of morality that we adhere to. So we say, you know, I become more and more mature, therefore I become more and more moral because we don't need morality, we need perfection. It's not a level of, of legalistic lifestyle that says, I do this so that God accepts me. No, that's actually backwards. All of the things that I do are in response to the grace, mercy, and love of my mighty Father. And so that's what drives me to do what I do. No, Galatians, you have made the mistake of adding to the gospel, of altering the gospel, and by so doing so, you have emptied it of all its power. And so we must remember what the gospel is, and it's this. It's the good news that though we were separated from God because of our sin and helpless to do anything about it, that God loved us, sent his son who died for us, and rose from the dead, defeating sin and death forever. That's the gospel message. That's what we need to have our lives centered on and focused on and forever be about. And so what Paul says to the churches at Galatians is like, how dare you walk away from the gospel? How, how dare you assume, like we, we saw in chapter 2, that somehow your acceptance in God's eyes is based on something you do or something you don't do? No, friends, your acceptance in God's eyes is based on what's been done for you. You've been justified. Just a little um, uh, footnote here. Uh, the story, the illustration that I shared last week about the Rolls-Royce fella, 
Before the service was done, praise God for technology, people were on Snopes checking it out. It's a true story. It was Rudyard Kipling. How many of you checked it out this week? Some of you are like, yeah, it is true. I looked, okay? Rudyard Kipling, it was him. So actually, that was a cool story. I should have done that before I preached it, but that's okay. Moving on. <laughs> You've been justified. What is justification? Justification is God's gracious act of making a sinner right with himself. God's gracious act in making a sinner right with himself. Not, not just pardoning him, but accepting him and treating him as righteous. And in Jesus Christ, because of what's been done for you, God has demonstrated not only his love for you, but his acceptance of you. You have been justified. But here in Galatia, there's huge controversy has erupted over what actually has to be done in order to earn God's favor. And Paul is ticked. You know how you can tell? Look at chapter 3, verse 1, just the very beginning. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Um, J.B. Phillips is a fellow who has a translation of the Bible that he worked on. Actually, it began as a project for his youth group. Uh, he wanted to put uh, scripture into the vernacular of his teenagers, and he translates verse 1 of Galatians 3 this way. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you cannot be so idiotic. Uh, it kind of gives you that feel. Paul's not happy. What Paul's about to do is say this to the Galatians. You want proof that God's acceptance of you has nothing to do with your following of the law? Because if you remember, the Judaizers had come in and said, listen, we're glad you've accepted Christ, but now on top of that, you must do this, keep the law. You must be circumcised. You must remain ceremonially pure. You must make sure that you follow every ounce and jot and tittle of the law in order to be accepted by God. And Paul says, you want proof that your acceptance with God has nothing to do with your following the law? Let's start by looking at your own experience, Galatians. And that's what he does in verse 1b through verse 5. I'll read that. Before your very eyes, Galatians, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing in what you heard? Paul says, you want proof that God's acceptance of you has nothing to do with your following of the law? Then let's look back at our history together, shall we? In verse 2, he says, so, so did, did you receive the Spirit because you did something? Is that how you were saved, because you were doing something wonderful? Let's, let's, let's ask that question about ourselves, even in this room. Where were you when Jesus Christ found you? Far from God, yeah? 
I mean, for some of us, it was a hedonistic lifestyle. We were running as fast and as hard as we could to enjoy pleasure, as many pleasures as we could, accumulating pleasures on top of pleasures because, hey, life's short, play hard kind of thing. So let's just keep accumulating these, these wonderful pleasures like a hedonist does, kind of like Solomon does in the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of us, instead of being hedonists, we were living a pagan lifestyle where we're doing everything in our power to find a religion that pleases God and makes much of ourselves. That's pagan at its most basic level. And then for some of us, Jesus Christ found us when we found our identity in being better than somebody else and following the rules that were set by the church we were attending. I agree. Wholeheartedly, I agree. You know what happened in all of those situations between the hedonists, the pagans, and the legalists? God kicked your door down. Salvation wasn't you. You get all that taken care of. You wash yourself up and then you come see me and then we'll be good. That's not salvation. Salvation was, I'll take you at your worst. I'll take you at your worst. And so Paul's argument here is saying, listen, if if God saved you at your worst, what makes you think that God's affections for you have now changed? So much so that you would stop applying the gospel to your life and instead you'd try to earn what was freely given to you to begin with. What are you doing? Your logic doesn't follow. That's verse two, and I spent too much time on verse two. Verse three, he continues his argument. If you were saved and if you've been sanctified by the Spirit with no work of the law, why would you go back to a law that hasn't saved you or sanctified you. Again, he's going logical. Verse four, then your experiences are in vain if they're truly in vain. Some, some translations take that Greek word and they translate it as your suffering. And, and there's true, that word can be translated as suffering. It can also be translated as experiences. And in this context, I would lean towards what the NIV has with experiences because it's not a context of persecution here. So he says, in your experiences, the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives was that a waste of time? Like, like now you're on to something that actually matters? Everything else before didn't matter. Well, let's follow that to its logical conclusion. If your acceptance in God's eyes depends on your legalistic keeping of the law, then why did Jesus come? The cross was pointless. The preaching of the gospel is a waste of time. The working of the Holy Spirit in your life is useless. Is that what you're trying to say, churches of Galatia? By trying to adhere to the law in order to gain acceptance from God? Verse 5 is really interesting. He talks about the Spirit's work among them. Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? Basically, he's saying, so, so you, you, you do know that the Spirit doesn't do miracles among you because of some process where you're like, hey, okay, if I do this and this and this, and I pull the lever, then God will bring a miracle. Hey, um, stepping out, that's not too different than many of the prayers of mantra sorcery that we tend to offer. If I say just this right phrase and I use this formula in my prayers, then I will force the hand of God to act on my behalf. That's demonology. That's not gospel truth. So be very careful. 
Um, Time-wise, I'll, I'll kind of stick back here, but, but please be careful. God is not a vending machine. God is not a, God, any gift that God has given you is good and perfect and it comes because of grace. You don't deserve it. That's why you celebrate it so well. So, okay, I'm wearing a Patriots jersey. We've, we've established that fact. 2002 was the first year the Patriots won the Super Bowl. Guess what? We didn't deserve it. We should not have been in that Super Bowl. There's this thing called the tuck rule, which makes anybody who has ever cheered for Oakland shiver. There is no reason the Patriots should have been there. So you know what? It made the Super Bowl that much sweeter, even though people are like, oh, it's tainted. I don't care. Where's yours? All right, good. I'm going to celebrate the one we got. I don't care if it's tainted or not. Oh, but then we, we spied on all the defenses. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But we won. I know that's terrible ethics to be coming from the pulpit, but understand this. The issue is this. It's not deserved. We celebrate the grace that is ours. See, I figured I'd follow my sword before you started swinging swords, so there we go. (laughs) So what Paul says is, Galatians, Galatians, you foolish Galatians. Do you want proof that your acceptance in God's eyes isn't based on your following of the law, look at your own experience. And then, then he takes it another step. Look at verse six. So also Abraham, you know, Father Abraham, the one they all look back to as he is our patriarch. Abraham, the one to whom the original covenant had been given. Abraham, the look back at Abraham who believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. See, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and they announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so, so, so what Paul does so perfectly, he says, let me talk about your experience, and now let's talk about this guy named Abraham. Anybody familiar with Abraham? Oh, I kind of thought that was the case. I thought you might know who Abraham, who he was. And verse 6 just kind of kicks it off. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. I just want to point out three things in that verse real quick that are vitally important for us to help us avoid legalism, to avoid the idea that what I do is going to gain me acceptance in God's eyes. It's all packed even into that one verse in verse 6. It says that God believed, or sorry, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. First thing we need to understand is that Abraham was not righteous. All you need to do is pick up your Bible in the Old Testament and start reading the story of Abraham. It's not hard to figure that out. Abraham had a few um, issues. He did some um, pretty foolish things. But Abraham was not righteous. So, So remember that, folks. You cannot be good enough to be accepted by God. So Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him, credited to him for righteousness. So, so it wasn't that Abraham was righteous and it wasn't that his faith was righteousness. See, his faith wasn't perfect. Abraham's faith was far from perfect. Do you, do you, want to, you need an example? So God comes to him and says, I'm going to, through you, bless many nations. And he talks about the descendants that will be as he takes him out in a starry night and he looks up at all the stars. It's like, wow, it's crazy. And God says, yeah, you're going to have more descendants than even that. Fast forward a few years and he doesn't even have a single son. Yet God promised, didn't he? So how is Abraham's faith? Well, Abraham's faith is such that he, 
slept with one of his servants so that he could have a son a different way. And Ishmael was born. And you know what the, without going off on a big rabbit trail, the consequences of that act are continued today. Look at the Middle East. That is the controversy and the conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. It wasn't that his faith was righteous. He, his faith was far from perfect. So folks, please understand, the strength of your faith is not what gains you acceptance in God's eyes. The object of your faith does, but not the strength of your faith. And it wasn't that Abraham believed in God. Please note that in verse 6. It says Abraham believed God, not believed in God. There's a huge difference. To believe in God is the same thing the demons have. They believe in God. They've seen him. They know. they got it figured out. But the difference is that the demons who believe in God shudder. And I've got to be honest with you. Many of us could use a healthy dose of shuddering. So so it wasn't that Abraham believed in God. It was that Abraham believed God. See, see, it's not about the knowledge you have. It's not about the theological acumen that you have because, excuse me, God's not looking for an all-star Jeopardy team when it comes to Bible history. He says, Abraham believed God. He took God at his word and it was credited to him. It wasn't earned. It wasn't deserved. It was credited to him as grace, as righteousness. Another's righteousness was given to him. So, so what did Abraham's faith actually look like? He left a strange land with no idea where he was going. He, he was following God very imperfectly, but still very committed to follow. He, uh, <laughs> he waited, sort of, for that promised heir from God. He offered that one son on the mountain. Uh, the, the, the way that the Genesis uh, narrative depicts the story is heart-wrenching. Because as God is speaking to Abraham and calling him to bring Isaac, his only son, and to sacrifice him on the mountain, Abraham hears the voice of God and God's voice says this, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love, With each of those names and titles, it was like a blow to the chest. Take your son, your boy, your only one, the only one that you have. The one whose name is Isaac, laughter. The one who who you got to see God provide miraculously and your wife laughed behind the curtain and I called her on it. The boy that you love. Take him to the mountain. And give them back to me. And for those of you familiar with your Bible, you know that Abraham did. He got his servants together. He got his son together. He got the wood together. And they began walking towards the mountain. After a few days, they come to the base of the mountain. They're beginning to head up the mountain. And Abraham stops, looks at his servants and says, You stay here. The boy and I are going to go Worship. Worship. Think about that for a minute. I think sometimes, oh, that's all right. I think sometimes when we leave this place on Sunday, we judge if the worship was acceptable in our eyes or not. 
But think about what Abraham was getting. How pleasing do you think his worship was going up to the top of that mountain with his son to sacrifice him? Abraham and Isaac climb the mountain. They get to the top, and unfortunately, many artistic renditions of this moment are inaccurate when it comes to biblical history because it has Isaac laying flat on a table and, and Abraham standing over him. But you've got to understand, when a sacrifice was offered, that wasn't the way it was done because you needed to grab the head of the animal and pull it back, exposing the neck. And so more than likely, Abraham stood behind his son, his only son, Isaac, the one he loved, pulled his head back, exposing his neck with the knife in his hand, and it says, as he was ready to cut his throat, the angel of the Lord spoke and said, Abraham, stop, stop. Now I know you fear God. What was the faith of Abraham like? The faith of Abraham was walking to the top of the mountain and we're told in Hebrews 11 that Isaac, in Abraham's mind, was as good as dead. But we're also told that Abraham, in his mind, as he climbed up the mountain, trying to justify what it was he was about to do, trying to understand how God's perfect promise and perfect plan could possibly collide like this, he had, he had kind of come to the own mathematics in his head. Okay, God has told me that this is going to be my son and that I will have descendants from that boy like the stars of the, the, the sky and, and nations will be blessed through that boy and God has called me to crucify and, and, and sacrifice this boy. And so as I go on up, then the, then the only thing that comes to mind for Abraham is what? He's God's going to raise him from the dead? Because that's faith. The faith that Abraham had was this. He took God at his word. He, he knew things. He knew and he acted like God is good, like God is just, like God will fulfill all of his promises. And even though God's ways are not our ways, God can be trusted. See, see that can be applied to all of us in everyday life, can it? We know God is good. We are positive that God is just. We know for certain that God will fulfill every single one of his promises, but there are those moments when his ways and our ways are so vastly different. And in that moment, we trust because he can be trusted. So that's gospel faith. And, and let me just throw this out there. there. There is a beautiful part of gospel faith that is, 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 is deluged and bathed in humility. Because in those moments when we admit that we're struggling to believe that God is good and God is just and God will fulfill all his promises and even though my ways and his ways don't line up, he can be trusted. When those things happen and we struggle with those things and we've slipped into trying to understand and line up his ways and our ways, we can cry out to God and just say, help me, help me, because you haven't changed. My circumstances are vastly different today than they have been. But you haven't changed. So I need help having the faith to trust that you are good. You are just. You will keep your promises. And though our ways are different, you're worthy of trust. See, Abraham believed God like that. And it was credited to his account as righteousness. You want proof that God's acceptance of you has nothing to do with your following of the law? 
Let me throw one more at you in the story of Abraham. Abraham's story occurred 430 years before the law was given. So these men who are going around saying, you must keep the law or God will never be happy with you, are basically saying Abraham stands outside of the acceptance of God. That's a small problem in in, in the Judaistic theology. So how did the Galatians and Abraham gain acceptance in God's eyes? Because they believed God, they took him at his word, they trusted in his ability and his power to deliver on his promises. You want proof God's acceptance of you has nothing to do with your following of the law? Look at your own experience, Galatians. Look at Abraham. But he finishes with this. Let's look at everybody's experience with the law. Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it's written, cursed is everyone who doesn't continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. See, the law isn't based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. See, finally, Paul gets to the main issue. and He says, you keep trying to apply the law to your continued sanctification. You continue to try to apply the law to a place where that's going to gain you acceptance in God's eyes. Enough of the examples. Let's forget about your example. Let's forget about Abraham's example. Let's get to the meat of the matter. And the meat of the matter is this. If, if, if everyone tried to follow the law, the very nature of the law says Everyone is condemned by their lack of ability to fulfill the law perfectly. So you want to add the law into your ability to keep uh, or to make God happy? So, so, so here, maybe, maybe this will help. So what is he talking about with the law? He's talking about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. That's the, that's the first part, Exodus chapter 20. Let's do a quick top ten list and see how we're doing with the Ten Commandments this morning, shall we? Let's start at number ten. Don't covet. So have you ever wanted something that everybody else had? Good, glad you guys are perfect this morning. Let's go to number nine. Don't bear false witness. Have you ever lied about somebody else? Now, this is a fun chat, isn't it? Verse number eight, don't, don't steal. You ever taken something that isn't yours? Absolutely not. I have never stolen from anybody. Good. Why are you on Facebook posting cat videos during work? Number seven, don't be unfaithful to your spouse. And number six, don't murder. I'm thinking like 95% of us in here are like, don't be unfaithful, don't murder. I got this one covered. More on that later. (laughs) Number five, honor mom and dad. Remember how you thought you were covered? The 95% of us just went, honor mom and dad. Have you ever uh, disrespected mom and dad before? Number four, honor the Sabbath day. Do you go weeks without resting? Oh, we had a really cool conversation uh, during our elder meeting on Monday night about rest and what rest really is. And, and let's be honest, not all of us can rest by sitting on the couch, putting our feet up and having the television on. That's not restful for many people. But the point of the, 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 the principle of, of the Sabbath rest is this. You must not work like the world depends on you because it doesn't. That's why God rested. To prove he's big enough to take a day off. The reason you rest is you lay yourself down to sleep and you close your eyes because God's still got it. 
How about number three? Don't use God's name in vain. Have you used God's name as a swear word? Oh, but that's not what it's talking about. Sorry to blow up your ideal and your history teaching or whatever. When it talks about using God's name in vain, it means to use it in an empty way. Oh, all right, this one's going to sting. Using God's name in vain is what happens during the beginning of the service when you start singing the first song, God's name comes up, and you're singing about God, and yet you're looking around the room to see who's here. You're using God's name in vain, in an empty way, lacking meaning. How about number two, don't have idols. I mean, obviously, you're not out back fashioning an idol, I don't think. Some of you, I wonder, but no, I'm just kidding. You're not out back fashioning an idol, so, so what, but what is an idol? What, what is an idol? an idol? Here, this is a great way to identify an idol. There's a couple of ways. So, so what do you lose? What do you? <laughs> I'm moving on. <laughs> the jersey stays. All right. <laughs> what do you lose sleep over at night? What do you lose sleep over at night? What do you spend an abnormal amount of money on? What brings irrational emotions if you should lose it? What do you daydream about? Those, those are some good um, identifiers of what your idols are. Don't have any idols. And don't, number one, don't worship anyone or anything other than God. How'd that go for you? Let me, let me read this again. For all those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Oh, I got bad news though. Those are the easy ones. Because then you go one more book into the book of Leviticus, which is all of our favorite book. I mean, you have life verse in Leviticus, right? Okay, good. So you go to Leviticus, and, and without spending a ton of time on it, let's just say this, there's 613 more laws, bringing the grand total to 623 if you're keeping track. These laws cover the areas of morals, morals <laughs> ceremonial laws, civil laws, the way you can worship, the way you can't worship, the what you could eat, what you can't eat, all of those things mixed in there. So this is going to cause a problem because now I have 613 more to keep track of. And just when you thought you were getting off the hook, if you remember back to, 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 to commandment number seven and six, don't uh, commit adultery and don't murder, you fast forward to Jesus' um, interpretation of the law in Matthew chapter five, where he says, it's not just actions, boys and girls, it's, it's your heart. So if you look at one to lust, then you have committed adultery in your heart. So men, if you look at that screen, your computer screen, and you see that image of that woman and lust is fulfilled in your heart in that moment, you are guilty of adultery. Women, don't get too comfortable. I'm talking to women, I should be nicer. <laughs> Got a little preachy, sorry ladies. But nope, okay, ladies, I'm gonna talk nice, but I'm gonna be direct. Lust fulfilled through a foolish television show like Bachelor or Bachelorette is adultery. Now, I'm not saying you're going to go to hell because you watch Bachelor or Bachelorette. <laughs> Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. The one who hates another guilty of murder. 
See, the, the difficulty, the, the pain, the, the problem with the law is the law doesn't prop anybody up to succeed. It condemns. And it condemns when, when, when what happens, look, I mean, it's amazing what, what verse 10 says. It says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do most of what's written in the book of the law. No. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law. No room for mistakes. Don't mess it up. Doesn't say get most of them right. It says get all of them right or your life is cursed. And so as Paul's talking to the Galatians, he's like, you fools. Why would you run back to the law? It, it doesn't save anybody. It condemns everybody. Why would you do this? And, and it could end very, uh, I'll say negatively. It could end negatively right there, but it doesn't. The law is actually a beautiful thing because what it does is it drives us to the place where we recognize we can't perfectly fulfill the law ourselves, and so we need help. And that help is given to us here in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. See, we have been redeemed from the curse of the law. We have been redeemed from damnation because Jesus Christ became a curse for us. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about. God made him to be sin for us, the one and only one who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, in the middle of the law, as we, as we look at the law, as we read the law, as we consider the law, what we find is our sin, our shame, our guilt, our curse, and our cross. But God, who loves us and showed us great mercy, sent his son to die for us. This doesn't mean the law has been destroyed because the law is still active. It continues to teach us and drive us to our knees, showing us how unworthy we are and how sinful we are. It continues to demonstrate that all of us have sinned and all of us have come short of the glory of God. It continues to demonstrate that apart from help, we are cursed. So it doesn't mean the law has been destroyed. It also doesn't mean that all of humanity now experiences freedom in Jesus Christ. Only those who are in Jesus, through faith, experience the freedom of Jesus Christ. See, I didn't get to cover it last week, but actually God had great plans because it's a fitting ending to this message. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, one of the most popular verses in all of Galatians, it talks about this very thing. How can I find myself to be in Jesus Christ? Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I am crucified with him. I lay myself down. I humble myself as a result of seeing the work of law in my life when it convicts me and declares me guilty. And so I lie my, lay myself down with Jesus Christ and it's his act on my behalf that gives me freedom. 
I've been put to death with Jesus Christ. The law has put on full display my sinfulness and my inability to live a perfect life. But, but what's crazy is, is in that, while it displays that, the law's demands, because of my guilt, are very clear. A guilty verdict does not mean life in prison. A guilty verdict doesn't mean a slap on the wrist. A guilty verdict demands death. So Romans 6 talks about, when Paul talks about the wages of sin, it's death. But if I have been crucified with Christ, the law no longer has claim on me. Its demands have been fulfilled because the penalty of death has been paid in Jesus Christ. And, and so what we find is what we talked about last week. Our acceptance in God's eyes is based on what's been done for you. We are justified because Jesus Christ died for you. So if you're here this morning and you've never experienced the freedom that is in Jesus Christ, and I don't mean the freedom to go do whatever you want. I mean the freedom to know that you can live without guilt and sin and shame every day. Then, then Paul uses this phrase time and time again. Today is the day of salvation. You are here today. This is the moment when the law has spoken very clearly, maybe you don't watch The Bachelor, but all of the other laws have convicted you very clearly and plainly. And when you are convicted of one, you are guilty of all. And by being guilty of all, the demand of guilt is death. But God, who loved us with an unrelenting love, who mercied us, through the willing sacrifice on my behalf of his son, Jesus Christ. See, all it takes to experience that freedom in Christ is for you to humble yourself in this moment and to call on Jesus Christ to be your savior. To renounce the ways you've been trying to gain acceptance in God's eyes, whether it be hedonism or paganism or even legalism, as you're, you're driving forward trying to do all the good things. To renounce those things and say, the only reason I stand clean and uncondemned before the Father is because of the perfect finished work of the Son. So your acceptance in God's eyes is based on what's been done for you. I have good news for those of you who have been in Christ a long time. We may wrestle with the acceptance in God's eyes. And the reason we do is because the law continues to do its job even when we're in Christ. And we continue to see time and time again guilt, sin, struggle. Galatians 2.20 is for you too. You read it again, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ. That message continues for you today as a believer who may be struggling with the acceptance of God. And let me explain why. I'm gonna give you a quick seminary Greek lesson. I mean, this is worth at least three years of seminary course load, so you can just you know, give me a check later and make up for it. We'll be good. I am crucified with Christ. The tense of that verb, which means a little to us in English when we study grammar, but not a whole lot, but in Greek it's profound. The tense of that Greek verb, crucified, is a present, sorry, it's a perfect tense. What does the perfect tense mean in the Greek? It means this. It's a historical event, a past event, an event that we can look back on and say that happened. 
But it's not just a historical narrative where we just say, that happened. It's a past event with ongoing results. A past event with results that don't end. I have been crucified with Christ. That's a past event. My Savior is Jesus Christ. I am forever in him. But the results continue on and on and on. I am crucified with Christ. And so therefore, right now, in this moment, I continue to reap the results of being crucified with Christ, which means I have been risen with Christ. And now I live, not a victim of my guilt, not a victim of my sin, but I daily live in the grace and the mercy according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ who rose and in so doing declared me innocent and justified me. Crucified, it's a past event with ongoing results. So we must live in that freedom because in Jesus Christ, you don't reside underneath the laws of condemnation because those who are in Christ Jesus, they have no condemnation. It means all of your sins, past and present and future, are taken care of in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It means that your acceptance in God's eyes is not only based on what's been done for you, but it's based on what's being done for you. God loves you. God likes you. And you are forever accepted in his eyes because of what Jesus Christ did and continues to do for you. So let's worship and celebrate the Savior who loves us in spite of us. Let's, 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 let's re, just, just explode with the good news that Jesus Christ purchased us and redeemed us and rescued us and he's still at work in us. May we be overwhelmed by the fact that we're crucified with Christ and yet alive in him. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, I thank you for your great love. Lord, I am overwhelmed by your mercy. I'm overwhelmed by your goodness. I'm broken by my sinfulness. Lord, in a way we could say we owe you, but we don't. We, we don't owe you a debt because you're still working. It's not even done. So Lord, I pray in each of our hearts that you would remind us of what the finished work of Christ has meant for us and what it continues to mean for us. And may we live in that freedom forever knowing that there is no condemnation for us. God, we go through some crazy dark times of sinfulness. We, we wrestle because we're still in our flesh and we're still in this broken place. God, we need good news. So I thank you that we can celebrate the good news that Jesus Christ died, rose again, and forever reigns on high. It's in the name of our precious Savior, I pray. Amen.